You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Welcome on this uh, spring break Sunday, as well as time change Sunday. Be nice to people when they walk in in 33 minutes thinking they're coming to the 10 o'clock gathering today. I'm sure there will be a few. We began a brand new series last week called Breaking Every Chain. And what does it look like to break chains? Last Sunday, we looked at breaking the, the chain of fear. Today, we're talking about breaking the chain of religiosity. So with your copy of God's Word, would you go with me, please, to the Gospel of Luke, uh, the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke. Let's go to chapter 18 together, Luke chapter 18. As you turn there, can I encourage you to keep your Bible open the remainder of the morning? We'll be in this passage alone today walking through it and then going back and revisiting the passages. So Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse nine this morning, as we talk today about breaking the chain of religiosity, just religion on the outside. Beginning in verse nine, this is a parable that Jesus is telling. Luke begins uh, by writing in verse nine a little context of the parable. Luke chapter 18, verse nine, he, meaning Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the story Jesus tells. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humble, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Religiosity, trying to look right on just the outside and not really caring about the condition of your heart. This morning, I wanna give you five things from this passage and I want you to own these things yourself. And so purposely in the notes that you'll see on the screen behind me that you might write down yourself or wrestle with yourself, I've allowed you to own these statements in the first person. Here it is. I am breaking the chain of religiosity when I am fully committed in belief and practice that righteousness comes from Jesus alone. That the chain begins to break of religiosity, of caring just about the exterior condition of, of what you look like and what, how people perceive you. When you're committed in, in faith and in practice, not just in faith, I would imagine if most of us took a survey uh, in, in, a, in a Baptist church on a Sunday morning, most of us would say, yeah, you know, righteousness comes only from Christ. So it's not really the belief that's probably weighing in the balance, it's the practice. That the way we actually live our lives, that understanding that righteousness does not come from what we do or who we are or where we are or who we are around or the rules or the regulations, but righteousness comes from Christ and from Christ alone. This was important to this story because go back to verse nine. Some of the crowd, it says here, they were trusting in themselves. Their self-assessment was this. I'm doing a pretty good job. I, I, I do my best. I'm definitely doing better than, than those people. 
But by comparison, I think I'm doing just fine. I, I do good things. I'm, I'm around the right people. Here's what Luke was saying, and here's what Jesus was addressing. These were people who were trusting in themselves for righteousness. But here's the problem. Romans chapter 3. No one is righteous. No, not one. Hold up the universal symbol with me, please, of everyone in this place today and all of humanity that has ever found righteousness in their own virtue, their own merit, and their own goodness. It looks like this. So everybody hold up your, your ma'am, that's the wrong finger. There you go, there's zero right there, yes. Okay, you can put that down. Thank you for participating. That, that's how many people are righteous in their own goodness, righteous in their own virtue, righteous by their own merit. Let me just say this to make sure we're all on the same page. In Christ alone do we gain righteousness. In Christ alone are we put in righteousness, kind of a big church word, so let me make sure we're on the same page. Righteousness means I'm in right standing with God, that I'm at peace with God, that I can stand before him with peace in my heart because he is the one through Christ who has made me right. The big Bible word is justification. We're in right standing with God. How is one justified? One is justified. One has righteousness. One is put in right standing with God when they put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ and his completed work of the cross. How is this possible? God takes a sinful man, a sinful woman, a sinful child and says, I will put the rightness of Jesus on top of him, on top of her. This is called the the, the, imputing the righteousness of Christ onto a person. Uh, imputing is just a big word for, for placing. Placing on someone the righteousness of Christ. So you and I are in right standing with God when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus because we are living in the right standing of Jesus. Now let me just say this to you, sisters and brothers in Christ, and this is good news. When God looks at you because of this justifying, because of the righteousness of Christ, when God looks at you, sister and brother in Christ, he sees perfection. He sees righteousness. He sees holiness. This is what it means that only the righteousness comes from Christ, not that we can accomplish that, not that we can do enough good things or show up at enough good places or be around enough good people or follow enough rules or regulations to get there. Righteousness comes only from Jesus Christ. Now, we become religious. We begin to dwell in our religiosity when we think we can achieve righteousness apart from Christ. We become religious when we think that we're above repentance. We become religious when we're think, we think we're above asking Jesus for daily grace. We become religious when we think somehow we can add to what Christ said at the cross. What did Christ say at the cross? It's done, it's finished, it's paid for. We can't add to that. Listen to the humble sincerity of Paul. You'll see this on the screen behind me in Philippians chapter three, verse nine, when Paul said, I want to be found in him. I want to be found in Christ and not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from regulations, from rules, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God is a gift and is by faith. Highland, you and I can break the chains of religiosity in recognizing our need for Jesus. And that it is impossible on our own to meet that need. Spurgeon said it beautifully and simply this way. I have a great need for Christ. I have a great Christ for my need. That's really the essence of the gospel, the essence of good news, really the essence of what Jesus was saying here in this passage. We have a great need for Christ and Christ is so great he can meet that need. 
Here's the second thing I want you to see this morning from this passage. I, again, making this personal to you and to me, I am breaking the, the chain of religiosity when I refuse to see others as worthless and beyond the scope of God's saving grace. That breaks religiosity in our hearts. When we refuse to see people as worthless, we refuse to see people as being beyond the scope or beyond the reach of the saving grace of God through Christ Jesus. On my 16th birthday, first thing I did here in Waco is went to the DPS office and got my driver's license. I don't get my kids, much less other kids who wait a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. How long did our son wait? A year and a half before he got his driver's license. I don't get that at all. I was camped out, 7 a.m., ready to get my license because it meant freedom for me here in Waco. I could drive wherever I wanted to drive. That same day, I found myself in a prison cell with the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. Do I have your attention? (laughs) On my 16th birthday, I got my driver's license. My dad, um, at home that afternoon, came home, and he said, John, there's been an invitation issued to me to meet with a man by the name of Henry Lee Lucas who confessed to killing 210 people in our nation. He was being interviewed right outside of Waco in a prison outside of Waco by the Texas Rangers, the law enforcement group, not the baseball team. And so my dad was asked by a captain of the Texas Rangers, would you be willing to come down and listen to the claim of Henry Lee Lucas? He was eventually convicted for 11 murders and sent to death row. But he claims to be a Christian, claims to be now a Christ follower. And I want a pastor to come and talk to him. So my dad, a local pastor here in town, asked me on my birthday if I wanted to go with him to this prison to sit in a cell with the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. I will tell you this, my birthday parties by comparison since then have been very boring throughout all these years. (laughs) So I went with my dad. And some of you in my generation, you might can remember even what Henry Lee Lucas looked like. He was a scary looking dude. And we went into the cell, Texas Ranger, a a warden or a a guard there from the prison, my dad and myself, and we sat down and Henry Lee Lucas began to explain to my dad what what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And I found myself for the first time in my life that I remember with a lot of religiosity thinking there is no way this man who killed 210 people confessed to killing 210 people, beginning with his mom, there's no way this worthless man can ever be within the scope of the saving grace of God. It was a stinking thought of religiosity. The warden in Huntsville, after Uh, Henry Lee Lucas was taken from Waco, said for 18 years before his death, he was daily in Bible study, daily in worship, and lived a life of a Christ follower. And here I was already learning religiosity as a 16-year-old thinking there's no way a guy like that can be saved. That's religiosity. When we think that people are worthless, when we consider there are some that are outside of the scope or outside of the reach or outside of the circle, the, the realm of, of the grace of God. Now, let me just say this to, to be very clear. There will be many outside of that circle by their own choice in the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But this is really important I say this this morning. I have no idea when and if the grace of Jesus Christ wants to save a serial killer or a prostitute or an abortion doctor or a Baptist preacher. 
That's above my pay grade. But I will tell you this, in verse nine, Jesus thought very little of those who treated others with contempt. I am breaking the chain of religiosity when I refuse to see others as worthless and beyond the scope of God's saving grace. Here's the third thing I want you to see from this passage this morning. I am breaking the chain of religiosity when I reject externals as spiritual yardsticks for others. When I reject just looking at other people, making a judgment on on their spiritual condition based just on what I see. Look at verse 10 with me, please. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. Uh, If you've been around church long enough, you kind of know about the Pharisees. They were consumed with how other people looked. They were consumed with outer appearance. They were consumed that people were following every letter of the law, even the 600 laws they added on top of scripture. They wanted to make sure that everyone was living according to how they thought they should be living. Now, let me just say this also about the Pharisees. I know they, we, we kind of always see them as kind of a lower class of people. They weren't the three stooges. They, they weren't the, the keystone cops. They weren't the hyenas from Lion King. Did I catch every generation with that? They, 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 were, they were highly educated people. They were unbelievably committed to the things of God as they understood the things of God. They were uncompromising, but listen, they were blind. They were blind to their own sin, thus blind to their need of a savior. And this Pharisee comes here to the temple. He, he goes up to pray. Anytime you go to the temple into Jerusalem, you always go up. He could not see his own sin. He could not see his own need for, for a savior. That the mantra of the Pharisees, the mantra of this Pharisee probably also was, I'm always right, you're always wrong. What a dangerous way to live life, by the way. And there were Pharisees here in the Bible. There's Pharisees in the evangelical church today. There's Pharisees at Highland. But I guess the Pharisee we need to consider the most is the Pharisee that might be in our mirror. We have to check our own selves for having a heart of a Pharisee, the heart of someone who always judges others by some external really spiritual sounding yardstick. And it's always based on how they look, always based on appearance. Now look what it says here in verse 10. There's an interesting word. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other. Normally I would skip right past that word other, but that word other is rarely used. This Greek word for other is rarely used in the New Testament for the word other. It's the word heteros. Now, I bring this out because it really means the opposite, not just another person, but an opposite person. A very, very different person also came. It was a tax collector. Most of y'all know what the tax collectors are. They're Jews hired by the Romans, which made them immediate traitors in the eyes of other Jews. And, And the tax codes were always changing. Sound familiar? The tax codes were always changing. And so a tax collector could come and just give some arbitrary number to a Jewish family, not really arbitrary, what is owed to the Roman government plus whatever that tax collector wanted for himself. So a number was just thrown out. I mean, how, how much do you think tax collectors were trusted in that day? Not at all. They, they were hated, they were, they were mistrusted, they were seen as, as traitors. And so here Jesus brings into the tax collector into the story as he's speaking to the Jews. Look what it says in verse 11. The Pharisee standing by himself and your Bible probably has a little notation there. Maybe your Bible even translates a little bit different. It seems like in Greek, it is saying that the Pharisee prayed to himself or, or the Pharisee prayed with himself, your Bible might say. In other words, it was a very horizontal prayer, not vertical. God was secondary to this prayer. 
It was a prayer about information. It was not a prayer about intimacy with God. And list, listen who he lists out here of who he's not. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, not like other men. I'm, I'm not like the extortioners. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. And then he obnoxiously points out this guy particularly, or I'm even like this tax collector. The Pharisee judged based on what he could see. Let that get into your spirit. The Pharisee judged by what he could see. And we do the same thing. In our religiosity, we often judge others or evaluate others by their title, by their position. What political party you're a part of? White collar, blue collar, PhD, GED. We often judge other people by this exterior spiritual spiritual sounding yardstick, our clothing, what someone wears, too formal, too casual, too expensive, too out of style. By, by physical appearance, the, the color of skin, height or, or weight or age, he's too old for fill in the blank. She's too young for fill in the blank. How often we become just like the Pharisees when we judge others based only on the exterior appearance. What about possessions or or status? A a nice car, a new car, a big house, a new house, the right neighborhood that they're living in, uh, the, the, the school that their kids attend, the number of friends that they have. Who are we to try to judge other people by outer appearance? How much do you really know about a person based on what you see? I'll say nothing really. And yet when you and I judge based on appearance, we are living in religiosity. This is religiosity and we want to be done with that. Here's the fourth thing I want you to see from this passage. I'm breaking the chain of religiosity when I review my relationship with God for form without function. This is breaking the chain of religiosity in our lives, Highland. When we begin to take an inventory, maybe it's daily, maybe it's weekly, looking into our lives and our relationship with God, our walk with Jesus Christ, and we begin to ask ourselves, how much of this is just form without any kind of function? You see, religion is all form, but no function. Religion is being at the right place with the right people at the right time, doing the right thing. But function is sincerity and worship and right motivation. Function is, Jesus, I want your name large and bigger all the time. I want my name small and shrinking all the time. Uh, function is, is the humility. Function is that sincerity. And, and we could take an inventory if you want to, even this morning right now, March 10th, 2019, 10 o'clock gathering. When we gather, you know what the function is of this gathering? It is to pour out a heartfelt river of adoration to God. That's, that's why we're here. To pour out to the Lord our love, our worship, our heart, our, our fears, lay before him our, our sin, our confession. This, this is why we gather, certainly to be encouraged, certainly to, to be with one another as the body of Christ, but the function of a worship gathering is to pour out, I'll say it again, a heartfelt river of adoration to God. What's the form? Come in, sit down, stand up, shake a hand, Sing, listen, sit down, stand up, hold some hands, go and eat. Right, that, that's kind of, that's the, that's the form. And we know the form and so that we have to be this constant cycle of inventory of our own heart of God. How much of even worship on a Sunday morning, how much of it's just form to me, but, but not the function of laying out before you my 
adoration, my worship, my life, my heart, my all. I'll give you another example, small group, whether it be a CG for you or ABF or the Worth table on Thursday night for women, the, the men's ministry on, on Wednesday night, maybe a Wednesday class that you're a part of. You know, the, 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 the form of that would be just to kind of come in, maybe eat a little bit of food, maybe uh, shake a few hands, maybe close your eyes when we pray, and then check the box and go. The function is Bible study, community, encouragement, fellowship, oneness, spurring one another on toward good works. That's, that's the function. And so we must constantly be asking ourselves, oh God, in my walk with you, how much of it's just form? Or how much of it's just symbolism? Or God, how much of it actually is function? How much of it is actually substance? Look here back into your passage. Look at verse 12, because the Pharisee had all kinds of form. In verse 12, look at his form. I fast twice a week. Here's his form. I give tithes of all that I get. Here's the problem. He had the form, but not the function. What's the function of of fasting? It's obedience and humility. What's the function of tithing? Humility and obedience. That wasn't there, just the form. But look at the tax collector. He, He has form and function. I mean, the form is there. He comes to pray, it says here in verse 13. Verse 13, the tax collector standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. Talk about humility, but would beat his breast. That may not mean anything to the 21st century crowd, but that means that he was confessing his sin. He was broken over his sin, saying, God, would you be merciful to me? I'm a sinner. So the, the form was there, but the function was also there. He prayed, but with examination. He prayed, but with humility. He prayed, but with confession. He was aware of his own situation. He was aware of his own need. This was a man who had done inventory of form and function, symbolism and substance. And it was a short prayer, wasn't it? I mean, just a sentence, one verse. So apparently it's not the length of the prayer that's important to God, but the sincerity of it. Here's the fifth and last thing I want you to see this morning. I'm breaking the chain of religiosity when I pursue personal humility. I mean, that breaks the back of religiosity when we're worried about the exterior view only of the people, what they think of us on the external. That's what religiosity is, but we break the chain, break the back of religiosity when we pursue personal humility. Look what it says here in verse 14. This is Jesus talking. I tell you, the tax collector, he went down to his house justified. There's that word again. And right standing with God rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. That's the essence of religion, exalting yourself. The essence of humility, I need God. Every hour I need you. You are my one defense. You are my only righteousness. Oh God, how I need you. Can I give you real quick four pragmatic ways this week to pursue personal humility? Because in doing so, we break the chain of religiosity. Here's the first thing. If you can write this down or memorize this or, or forget it, whatever you want to do, it's fine with me. Here's the first thing. Embrace the slights. Embrace slights. This week, you'll be slighted. You'll be forgotten. You'll be left out of the, the text thread. Someone will say something about you that kind of hurts your feelings. You're not recognized for something you did. And, and what you did was really good, but you were never recognized for it. Everyone else might be encouraged around you, but not you. You might do everything else right, but you don't get any of the praise for it. You might get left out of the invitation. 
Can I encourage you this week when you're slighted and oh, we will be slighted this week, instead of resisting that or instead of being upset about that or growing bitter about the slight, embrace it. Pastor Jared says this often from Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, talking about a slight. And with joy, Jesus pursued the cross. So I'd encourage you this week, when you get slighted, love it. Embrace it. Know it's just one more mark that you're becoming more like Jesus. Here's the second thing. Be the first to seek reconciliation. And this is gonna hurt some of your hearts to hear this. Even if it's not your fault, be the first to pursue reconciliation. Be the first to go and say, I I know we're at odds. I know we've hurt each other. I, I know things have been said. I want to seek reconciliation. I want us to, to walk together arm in arm, hand in hand, in the same direction. Be the first to seek reconciliation. Here's the third thing. Shout out accomplishments of others and whisper yours. Be okay with praising others, encouraging others, shouting out all the great things that they have done. But if you've done great things, just whisper it. Maybe to a few people that, that can handle the blowing of your own horn. Shout out the accomplishments, the good deeds, the good works of others, but whisper your own. And here's the fourth thing that I would say to you. Rejoice in second place. Be okay that someone else is first. Congratulate them. Rejoice in second place. I might say that's the antithesis of capitalism, but it is a reward in the kingdom of God. We put others above ourselves, put the interests of others above our own. Rejoice this week in second place because here's what it says. Here's the question perhaps from verse 14. Do you want to live a life of humility where Christ exalts you? Or do you want to live a life where you're exalting yourself and Jesus has to step in to humble you? I would like plan A. To live a life pursuing humility and let Jesus at his right time and his sovereignty exalt when Christ sees fit. Would you stand with me please and let's pray together. God, we are committed this morning in belief and practice that righteousness, right standing with you, O God, comes only through Jesus Christ. Not of our works, not of our religiosity, not of our, our outward expression, our outward condition, based upon the rightness of Christ being placed on top of us when we truly, by faith, believe that Jesus is the resurrected Son of God who forgives sins and puts us in right standing. Oh God, that you would take a sinful person and place on us the righteousness of Christ. The obedient death of Jesus on the cross was payment for our sins. That is our one defense. That is our one righteousness, not a righteousness of our own from the law, but that which is a gift, a gift from God that comes by faith. It's the name of Christ that we pray together, our righteousness we pray together. Amen.